So we, we got some work to do. So we're going to jump right in. I've titled the message this morning, The Providential Purposes of God. The Providential Purposes of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning humbly submitting ourselves to you, to your, to your authority and to your plan and your work through the preaching and the hearing of your word. And I pray that you would minister to every life that is here. Pray that we'd be able to see you correctly and through a correct vision of who you are, that it would, would humble us, but it would also comfort us. And we just pray, God, that you would work through your word today. I pray that you would help me today to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at one verse here this morning, John 8, verse 20. John 8, verse 20. Last week we looked at John 8, verse 12, and we're going to look at one verse this morning, and it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon. It's going to be the mix between a sermon and a theological study, and, and I'll explain to you as we go along here. Um, and so I'm going to, what I want to do is I want to read these verses. This is what we left. We did John 8, 12 last week. I want to read John 8, 13 through 20, excuse me, 13 through 30, and then we're going to look at one verse from this section. So just to give us the context, we're still where we have been the last few weeks, Jesus is in the temple, the end of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. He's still communicating with the Pharisees. And so it says in verse 13, John 8, verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Where are, who, who, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus, in this section, he doubles down on his pronouncement of judgment against the Pharisees. Did you hear it? He doubled down. He, not, he didn't just say like he said a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7, I'm going away and where I'm, come, where I'm going you cannot come. But he says, he adds to it, you will die in your sins. 
And then he says, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so he's doubling down on this pronouncement of judgment. And and Jesus speaks to the fact that he is from the Father and that that he is only doing what he has been sent to do. And, And Jesus says in verse 17, he says, in your law it's written that the testimony of two or three witnesses make something true. And he says, I'm test- so, so here's the two witnesses. I'm, I'm testifying about myself. I'm the first witness. And my father's the second witness. And they said, who are you? Who are you that you think you can bear witness about yourself? Who are you? And he says, okay, I'll tell you who I am. When you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am he. And what is he pointing to when he says, when you lift up the Son of Man? He's speaking about himself being lifted up on the, on, on, on the cross. And isn't it interesting when, when Jesus makes this pronouncement, he says, when the Son of Man will be lifted up, you will know that I am he. What, what happened after Jesus gave up his spirit and he said, it is finished and the earth shook and the, 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 the curtain in the temple was torn into? What happened? Centurion soldier says, truly this was the Son of God. Jesus said it would happen, and it happened. They would recognize that he truly was he. He was the Son of God. And so when Jesus would be lifted up in crucifixion, when his hour would come, when his time would come, when his time would come, his his predetermined plan that was made for him before the foundations of the world to be crucified, when it would come, when the hour would come. Do you remember when Jesus was with Mary at at the wedding in John 2 when we studied this? Several months back, they had ran out of wine, and Jesus and Mary came to Jesus and said they ran out of wine. And what did Jesus tell his, his mother? My time has not yet, my time has not yet come. You remember in chapter 7, a few weeks back, his brothers want him to go up to the feast of tabernacles to show himself, make a public display of his power. What did he tell them? Chapter 7, verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my My time has not yet fully come. So what I want to do here today, I want us to turn our attention to verse 20 of our text. Look at John 8, 20. We're not going to look at these other verses that that I just read. These other verses I read are really kind of repetition of what we've looked at over the last few weeks. And what I want to look at is this reality in verse 20. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour His time had not yet come. His hour, his time. The word time there, or word hour there, is the word kairos, kairos. It's not clock time. When you want to ask somebody what time it is, what do they do? Most of the time, they don't do this, or left hand, look at the watch. They they go for the back pocket, don't they? We don't do this anymore. We do this now, and we look at the time on on our phones. Right, what time is it? Not clock time. His hour had not yet come. His time, Mother Mary, Mary, it's not my time yet. It's not clock time. It's Kairos time. It's appointed time. It's the picture of God's divine timetable. So when Jesus says, my hour's not here, my time's not here, he's saying, there's something that God has planned for me. There's a purpose that I have. There's a divine timetable. So I want us to ponder today about God's plan. I want us to think today about the fact that God has a plan. God is purposeful. God has a plan. He's purposeful. He is a God that orchestrates and plans and is unfolding his plan throughout human history. He's unfolding his plan throughout human history, but also in our present reality. 
And so what I'm going to do here today, I'm going to give you a biblical theology on the doctrine of God's providence. God's sovereignty, his providence, his plan, his purposes. So a biblical theology is this. A, a biblical theology is to take a theme and to look throughout Scripture and to, to see where we, we see this theme throughout the Bible. So we're going to look at a lot of verses. I, I told the, um, the pro presenter guy who puts the screen up there, puts the Scriptures up there, I told that, uh, that brother this morning, I said, these are the most verses I've ever had in a single sermon in my entire life. So I'm saying that to you. So, you thought I read a lot, 13 through 30 in John 8. Just buckle your seatbelt. This is a biblical theology and a sermon all wrapped up in two. One, I want us to think about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. And, and, and we want to answer a couple of questions in doing this. First question is this. How are we to understand the biblical reality, the biblical reality that God is sovereignly unfolding his purposes in the earth? How are we to understand that? What does the Bible say? And then secondly, how does this knowledge impact my life? How does the knowledge that God is purposeful impact my life? And so this is what we're going to do. I have three thoughts we're going to bring out here. So here we go. You're going to get out later than we did last week, but we're going to work through it. And I believe that God's going to do something in all of our hearts here today. The first thing we're going to look at here, when we're talking about the providence, the sovereignty of God. Here's the first thing we need to think about. God is actively working in his creation. God is actively working in his creation. And so what's the alternative to God, creator of the universe, what's the alternative to him actively working in creation? The alternative to that would be that he is passive, would be that he is distant, would be that he is disconnected. And there's a term for that. There are some people who believe in God, but they don't believe in a personal God. They don't believe in a God that is interacting with his creation or with the earth itself, they believe in what would be called, or they would call themselves deist, or you could call, it, you could call that de deism. And deism, if you can imagine it, is like a clock that is wound up, old grandfather type clock wound up and, and set in motion. Or, or you get that, that timer when you're cooking your food, your grandmother would have the, the, the mechanical timer and you'd wind it up and you'd set it and when it was done, it would go ding. It means it was done, right? Think about that. This is what deism is, that God, the idea is that God at the beginning wound up the clock of time and space and humanity, and he set everything in motion, and then he removed his hand from his creation. He stepped back, and, and now he's just been watching it unfold. He's been watching in Calcutta the misery unfold. He's been watching 9-11. That's going to be next Sunday, the anniversary. He's watching everything unfold, just watching, just watching, and watching it happen. He wound up the clock, and he stepped back. Through the lens of deism, God is passive. And he's not at work in history, in time, in space, in humanity. And through deism, God's off the hook, isn't he? Through a view of God being distant means God's off the hook. Deism, through the lens of deism, God doesn't get the credit or the blame for anything in his creation. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is that what we see in Scripture? That God's distant, that he's not actively working in his creation. Do we see that? And the answer, biblically, is a resounding no. And here's what we're going to see. Kind of three main areas that we see God actively at work. We see him actively at work in the physical earth. We see him actively at work in the nations of the world. And we see him actively at work in the affairs of humanity. So where do we see God actively at work? God is actively working in the physical earth. Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great. 
and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he, he does. Where does he do whatever he pleases? In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise. You've been seeing a lot of rain lately, a lot of dark clouds. Who is it that's making those clouds rise? Making those, cloud, those dark clouds come? It's God. He is the one who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is actively at work in the physical earth. You remember Job? Job had a lot of questions about the active work of God. And if you really accurately read the story and you don't ignore chapter one and the beginning of the story of Job, God called Satan and said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, he serves me, he's faithful. Satan said, well, of course, he would never curse you because you've blessed him. Remove your blessing and he'll curse you to your face. And God said in Job, you can have everything in his life but his physical breath. Test him. So Job loses his health, filled with boils all over his body. All of his kids are killed and taken. Loses all of his family. The only thing he has left is his wife. And she said, Job, you need to curse God and die. Wow. And Job questions and he ponders. He doesn't curse God, but he's questioning, he's pondering, he's thinking deeply. And the whole book of Job is this kind of narrative between Job and God and Job and his so-called friends and Job and his wife. And it culminates and it builds and it builds. And finally, God responds to Job's questions. And God says this in Job 38. Listen, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Who, who, who actively commands the morning to appear every day that you wake up? God. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? Have you visited the storehouses of the snow? We don't have any storehouses of snow down here, do we? God, God saved the storehouses of snow for the northeast. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Have, I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Do you know, O oh Job, the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? What, what is God saying here? He's saying, I know the laws of the universe. I regulate, I'm actively regulating the earth. Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? So when you hear the thunder, that's God shouting, right? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? And not only in the physical earth, but in creation, who provides food for the ravens when, they, when their young cry out to God and wonder about the hunger? God is actively at work in his creation. You see it in scripture. The physical earth we live in and the galaxies around us are being held together by the active power of God. He's not off. Didn't, just didn't wind up the clock of creation and said, I'm going to watch all this chaos unfold as sin destroys and wreaks its havoc on physical earth. I'm not going to stand back and watch it happen. I'm actively engaged in it. You know, what's amazing is that the very balance of our existence is superintended by God. The very balance of our existence, the fact that we can breathe oxygen today is because God has allowed that to take place. And don't we take it for granted? Hebrews 1.3 tells us this reality. 
He, God, is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what does Christ do? What does God do? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians says he holds all things together. God is actively at work in his creation. Secondly, God is actively working in the nations. I want to say this, listen. God's the one who rules the affairs of nations and kings and presidents. And when we don't like the direction of the nation or the, or the leaders, we can be tempted to believe it's happening because God is absent. God, if you were actively working, you wouldn't let that person in power. You wouldn't allow that leader to rule. You wouldn't allow this or allow that. God, if you were actively at work in, in the nations, what does the Bible say, though? That may be what we think, but what does the Bible say? Psalm twenty two twenty eight for kingship belongs to, to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Daniel 2, 21, he changes times and seasons. And he removes kings and sets up kings. That's what the Bible says. The nations of the world and their rulers and authorities are under the hand of almighty God. He changes times and seasons. He rules over the nations. He gives and takes away kingship or authority. And so for anyone who is a, a, a leader from my, me as a leader, anyone else who is a leader, leaders of, of, of cities and, and, and states and, and kings of nations and leaders of nations and pres, the president of the United States, the, even the most self-centered political leader who fights to maintain power only has that power because God has allowed them to have it. And even when that leader thinks that it's because of, of their ingenuity or their power or their ability to speak or to declare or to win votes, it's only because God has allowed them in that position and that authority. And the Bible says that. He rules the nations. He sets up kings and he removes kings. What about God being actively working in, in our lives, in the affairs of humanity? We see, we saw he's active in the earth. He's active in kingdoms and nations and rulers and authorities. He's active in our life, Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book, God's got a book, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed in me. Wow. God created our life. He formed our days. He established our days. And they're written in his omniscience, in his knowledge. Wow. It's not, you know, God's not sitting up in heaven. The alternative to that is that God is sitting up in heaven. And he's like, oh, how did that person get here? Oh, didn't see that one coming. I didn't know they were going to have that baby. Oh, unplanned pregnancy. No. No. Before we were ever in our mother's womb, he saw us. He knew us. He formed us. He established our days. 
God is actively at work. God is not sitting back watching and waiting and seeing how many, how many babies are the pharaohs going to have? Are they done? They got five. Are, are they finished? I'm not sure. <laughs> right? or, or the Carnes, I think y'all got six, right? I don't know. We got kids coming out everywhere. We're done as far as I'm concerned. But maybe God knows we have another kid coming. He's not shocked. He's actively working. Daniel chapter four says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as as nothing. Listen, and he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and where else does he do according to his will? Among the inhabitants of the earth and no one, none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? Job, no one can say, what have you done? Wow. So this is strong, is it not? It's it's humbling. It does something to your mind and your thinking. And you got all kind of trails in your brain that are going right now. And you're thinking about Calcutta, India. And you're thinking about sex trafficking. And as I was sitting there listening to that testimony, I'm like, oh, what a day for me to preach about the providence of God actively at work in creation. But this clearly biblical theology of God's providential working and creation, it runs counter to popular ideas today. Ideas like we make our own luck, right? You can make your own luck or, or karma, what goes around comes around. I mean, some, some people say that, right? That, you know, it's just, this, it, that God, there's no God, that God's not actively working. I might believe in the deity, but I, I believe more in karma and luck and happenstance or the blind fate of the universe or, or, or how about the golf gods on the golf course? How many times have I heard that, that shot went in because of the golf gods? They've been fair. I've never had the golf gods on my side. Or pantheism. God is in everything, and so we just need to look inward. God is in everything, and he's everywhere. He's in the plants. He's in the, he's in the flowers. He's in, he's, in, he's in the cows. He's in the animals. He's in everything, and so he is everywhere and in everything, and so that means we just need to look inward for answers, pantheism. There's many millions and millions of gods or reincarnation, birth, and rebirth. I love what Alistair Begg says. What the Bible tells us is that God is the creator and sustainer of life. He is operating according to his own purpose to work out everything according to the counsel of his will. That's what Ephesians says, Ephesians 1. The ultimate end of the providence of God is the manifestation of his own glory. He doesn't have the selfish fascination that many of us have today when we explain our lives in a way that leaves out his eternal counsel. Did you hear that? I want to read that one more time. God doesn't have the selfish fascination that many of us have when we explain our lives in a way that leaves out his eternal counsel. God's not absent from his creation. He's not passive in his relations towards us. But rather, Scripture shows us that God is actively working. Psalm 96 says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For he is to be feared among and above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Stay among the nations. The Lord Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Or how about this alternative? 
Say among the nations, the Lord's watching all this unfold. Say among the nations, the Lord is waiting to see what will happen next. Say among the nations, the Lord has without compassion left us to ourselves. No. Say among the nations, even in Calcutta, India, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. God is actively working in his creation. We see that. Second thing we see is this. God's providential care does not negate our personal freedom or responsibility. God is actively working and he's providentially and sovereignly working in creation, but God's providential care does not negate or do away with our personal freedom or responsibility. We're not robots pre-programmed to do what God says. That would be called fatalism. We're not fatalist. We're not fatalism. We, we, we are not fatalists. We don't believe that God wound up the clock and set everything in motion in order and then he, and then he has his plan and we just have to do everything that he pre-programmed us to do. We don't see that in scripture, do we? What do we see in Genesis? We see at the very beginning of creation, God gives humanity the ability to choose. Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened when God gave Adam and Eve that command? He gave them the ability to, to choose, to sin, to say, to say, okay, God, I hear your command, and I'm going to listen or I'm not going to listen. God's providence doesn't negate our responsibility to listen to God and to obey and to make choices. What happened in Genesis 3? What happened? Satan came. It's the fall. Satan came in the form of a serpent and he, he tempted Eve and he deceived Eve and Eve came to Adam and said, look at this fruit. It's good to eat. And they made a choice to disobey God. But, but what's amazing about this choice that God has given us, this freedom God's given us, this personal responsibility and accountability for our choices is that that's in the backdrop of Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his Steps. What do you see there? You see the freedom of choice. The man plans his ways, but God is here. He's establishing our steps. You see the, the free will of man, the providence of God working together. And this is what we see. Yes, we have freedom and responsibility. We're accountable for our actions, but God providentially is working in our life. Where do we see that in Scripture? I want us to look at one story in Scripture that beautifully and even painfully demonstrates the reality of personal freedom to choose working together with God's providential care. You guys know the story of Joseph, don't you? Genesis chapter 37. Israel, Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. It says, chapter 37, verse two, Joseph being 17 years old was taking care of the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So I want to say on the outset, favoritism is not a good idea. Lots of bad things can happen. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age. <laughs> my kids say that I love Lincoln more than them. But it's not true, but he is a son of my old age. <laughs> and what did, what did Joseph do? He made him a robe of many 
brothers. That was Jacob's free decision. God didn't make Jacob make Joseph a coat of many colors. God didn't make Jacob favor Joseph other, over his other sons. Jacob made a free decision of his own free will to make a color, a colored a robe and jacket and give it to Joseph because he favored him and loved him more than his other sons. Okay, so that now, now let's look at Joseph's free decisions. Joseph's got a little chest poking out a little bit and he goes to sleep after he got that coat of many colors and he's feeling good about himself and he has a dream, but it was a dream from God. Chapter 37, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. And we know what happened. What was the dream that he told his brothers and his parents? He said, I saw that you were all going to bow down and serve me. Can you imagine that breakfast dinner table? <laughs> Joseph wakes up, he wakes up and he, he gets out of bed and he puts on that colorful jacket and he's ready to go to the table. He's like, boy, I had a dream today. Let me put on my jacket before I get to the table. Because that, that, the dream, dreams like my jacket, really colorful. So he sits down at the table and he tells this, this, the, 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 the dream. There wasn't handwriting on the wall that made Joseph tell that dream to his brothers. And I believe God spoke down from heaven and said, Joseph, go tell your family, go tell your family that they're all gonna bow down and serve you. No, no, he just made his own free choice to tell that dream. What free choice did Joseph's brothers make in response to their brother? Genesis 37, 18, they saw Joseph from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Wow. What, what deep level anger must these brothers have in their heart? Wow. So they made a free choice. No one made these brothers bind Joseph and throw him in a pit. No one made Reuben thankful for Reuben. Reuben stood up and said, no, we're not gonna kill him. We're just gonna protect him and save him and we'll sell him to these slave traders that are headed to Egypt. No one made them do that. They, they made their own free choice to hate hit their brother, to bind him and throw him in the pit, to sell him into slavery. And so here's how the story unfolds. They, he get, Joseph gets sold into slavery and be, because of their own free decision, motivated by jealousy, 13 years he's in slavery and, and false accusation, he, he gets, he gets he, he, he's in slavery, then he gets uh, to, to go to Potiphar's house and, and he, he, he rises in, in authority in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife, out, out of her own free decision, looks at Joseph and says, man, you are good looking and I want to spend time with you alone. And what is Joseph? Out of his own free decision, he says, no, how can I dishonor God? How can I dishonor Potiphar? And he runs away without his outer garment on, his own free will to honor God. And where did it get him? It got him in prison. And he, you know, through a series of events, he rises to authority in prison, and then he in, interprets dreams, and he gets out of prison, and he ends up second in command over all of Egypt. Free choice, but what's happening? As people are making free will choices in and around Joseph's life, what's, what's happening? You know, if it was us, I think if you got my perspective about what's happening, I'd be, I'd be like, I might be a little bitter and a little angry. It was your fault and it was your fault and dad, why did you make me that stupid quote? And certainly I could, I could blame my brothers. They bound me and threw me in a pit and sold me into slavery. But what's Joseph's perspective about all these free choices these people made against him? We see the culmination of Joseph's perspective 
in Genesis 45. This is one of the most profound sections in all of Scripture. Genesis 45, starting in verse 3. So Joseph said to his brothers, this is after they come down and bow before him. They didn't recognize who he was. Joseph wept bitterly, reveals himself to them. And obviously they're scared. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but, but God. Wow, what a perspective. I, I, I don't know if I could have that perspective. I, I, I'm, being, I'm being honest, and I know if you were honest, I don't know if we could have that perspective. Betrayal and, and, and murderous hearts towards, towards us and, and falsely, falsely accused and thrown in prison and, and, and 13 years of this cycle and this pattern. I don't know if I could have that perspective. It, 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 it wasn't you. It was you, but it wasn't you. It was you. Yes, you're guilty. You're accountable, but it wasn't you. It, 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 it was God. Free decisions, but God's providence weaving a beautiful story of redemption and salvation for the nation of Israel. People making choices, but God's purposes will prevail. You did it. You're guilty, he says. You did it. You're guilty, but it wasn't you. God sent me here. Personal choice and responsibility working together with the providence of God to fulfill God's will for his, for his glory, for his glory. So, so we see God is actively at work. And it's such a profound story here. God is even actively at work in, in our decisions and what seemingly seems to be just normal decisions that we make. God is providentially and sovereignly working in the midst of our lives. So the question we're going to end with is this. How does that impact my life right now? Great, Pastor Ben. Great story about Joseph. You know, thousands of years ago. But what about my life? How does it impact my life? This understanding that God is not just distant from his creation, that God is working providentially in our lives. So here's the third final thing we're going to look at. God's providential care crushes our pride and provides pillows for our panic. God's providential care crushes our pride and provides pillows for our panic. So how does the knowledge of God's providential care in my life impact me right now? I should never boast about any victory that I have. I should never boast about any accomplishment, any job, any title. When I understand, if it had not been for the Lord, where would I be? If I, if, if, when I understand that God's providential care in my life is, is, he's the one that has orchestrated. I've made my plans, but God has established my steps. This knowledge crushes pride. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? King Nebuchadnezzar stood up on the balcony of his palace and look at what he said in Daniel 4. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? How'd that go for King Neb? God judged him. You know what happened to him? 
He grew fingernails long like, ta- like, 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 like falcon's nails, right? And, and he, 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 he lived on the grass and ate grass like a cow for seven years. His hair was long. God judged him for his pride. He believed it was his power, it was his might that got him to his authority and his kingdom. The providence of God crushes pride and reminds you, no, it was not you. And whenever he finally came to his senses seven years later, look what King Nebuchadnezzar said. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So I'll say this, there are no self-made people. You you know, you've, you've heard that phrase before, right? Self-made man. I'm, I'm, I'm a self-made man. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't know what bootstraps are. What are bootstraps? Does anybody know what they are? I, I, I don't, I, you know, we don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we think we do. What, whatever those look like. If you have some, show me later. I know self-made people. Without the Lord's care and work in our lives, none of us would be here. You know, what's, what's powerful is when you, when you have this view of the providence of God working in your life, in and through the circumstances of your life, good and bad, everything in between, you know what a good practice to do is? It's to look in the rearview mirror. We often only want to look this direction, but it's good to look in that rearview mirror because here's, here's what it does. The rearview mirror teaches us how we should evaluate our life. It reminds us, oh, I remember that conversation that meeting, that coincidence, that chance, right? That happenstance, no. God's providentially working in our life. Psalm 124 verse one says this, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, we wouldn't be here. So there's no place for pride. How does this impact our life? The view of God's sovereignty and his providence? There's no place for pride and there's no reason for panic either. No reason for panic. God's providential care is the best pillow for us to rest our head on. And I just want to say, I, I, I don't understand all the, all the reasons why evil is allowed to run rampant in our world. If it was up to me and my decision, there would be no more sex trafficking in any part of this planet. No more children would be abused and neglected and taken advantage of. If I had my way, be no more sin, no more consequences for, for the sin. We wouldn't have to see any of that unplay, play, play out if it was up to me. And I don't have all the answers for every problem that I face personally, but I'm resting my head and my heart in the capable hands of an all-powerful, loving, good God who holds the world in his hands. I want to illustrate that like this. I love Jesus and his words and how he comforts us. You can find an account of this in the book of Matthew chapter 27, but I want to look at Luke 12, 6 and 7. Listen to what Jesus says. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So I want you to get this for a second. Jesus is making a point about not fearing and not worrying and being anxious. He says, are not five birds sold for two pennies? And Roman pennies, which would have been his perspective, are, was some of the most lowest amounts of money, even less valuable than, than our pennies. He says five sparrows, five birds are bought for next to nothing. And not one of them is forgotten 
before God. Who's the one who feeds the sparrows? We saw that earlier, did we not? Who feeds them? God feeds the sparrows. They're, they're worth next to nothing. You can get five of them for nothing. But not one of them is forgotten by God. And I, I love verse 7. Why? It's, it's kind of like this, it's like he's, God's talking to us. He's saying, why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And <laughs> that's so good. Wow. God providentially cares for birds, for sparrows. He doesn't forget the birds. And yet God knows every hair of your head, even the ones you could have. Said that, put that in there for all the bald people here today. In case you think God didn't care about you, all the spots that are there that could have hair, he knows all the hair that could potentially be there. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, fear not. Providential care of God. If he cares for the sparrows providentially, he providentially cares for me, I have no reason to panic. It crushes my pride. I'm not a self-made person or a self-made man. And it gives me pillows for my panic. I rest my head at night in the reality that, that God's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, providence may be seen as the finger of God. Providence may be seen as the finger of God, not merely in those events which shake nations and are duly emblazoned on the pages of history, but God's providence is seen in the little incidents of common life. Divine providence is a, a downy pillow for an aching head and, a, and a, a blessed salve for the sharpest pain. He who can feel that his times are in the hand of God need not tremble at anything that is in the hand of man. I will not fear what can man do to me. Right? Let's end where we started. Where, where did we start? We started John 8, verse 20. Now that I took you through that little biblical theology of God's providence, let's start. Let's finish where we started. What was John 8, 20? These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. God's plans, God's purposes, the divine purposes of God cannot be thwarted by men. What great comfort to know that our God is a purposeful God. Look at what Acts 2 says about the hour of the crucifixion of our Lord. Acts 2, Peter stands up and looks at the Jews who crucified Jesus. He talks about the hour of his crucifixion. Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. His hour came. And who was it that crucified him? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Divine planning, sovereignty and providence the responsibility of man. Did you, did you see that? But notice, notice what John 10, 18 says. Jesus says this, no one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So those, those, those Jews that crucified Christ, Peter's looking at them and saying, this is according to the definite plan of God, and you're guilty and you're responsible for it. You killed him, yes? What did Jesus say? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Redemption was not accomplished because the hands of foolish men overpowered an almighty God. Redemption was accomplished because almighty God fulfilled the plan of redemption that was accomplished. Listen, we're almost done. Redemption was accomplished because almighty God fulfilled the plan of redemption that was accomplished even before the foundations of the world were laid. How do we know that? Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Wow, you know what that means? Jesus was killed in time and space by Jews who were guilty and culpable for his murder. But he was slain long before foolish men crucified the Savior because God's the one that's in control. And why was Jesus slain? And this is what is so beautiful about the providence of God. I want you to listen to me. Jesus was slain because he loves. Because he loves. He's purposeful because he loves. And and we can lay all of our burdens and our questions and our fears down at the feet of our God who loves us and is working all things together for our good. Amen? Amen. So I don't, I don't know how you got in here, what car you came in, if you drove yourself or you rode in the back seat. Or you're here because God designed you to be here. I don't know what you're walking through, what pains and sorrows and difficulties and challenges you're dealing with and the questions you have. But I pray that today you'll leave with this sense of understanding that none of it's an accident. We don't live in a world that is just firing off because of accidents. That's evolution. That's random chance. No. We live in a, we live in a universe that is under the sovereign care of our God. And he orchestrated your life to be here right now in this moment so that you would hear that God loves you and he loves you so much that he sent his son to, to be the payment for your sins so that you might today make Jesus the Lord of your life. If you're here today, I plead with you today. I, I, I ask you today, if you're not a believer, to, to receive Christ today, to make him your savior and your Lord, to repent of your sins then make Jesus the Lord of your life. And if you're here today and you're struggling with trusting God because of the difficulties you're walking through, I pray that today you would leave with a, a better pillow for you to go to bed on tonight. I know some pillows are not very comfortable, but there's really only one pillow to rest on. It's the pillow of God's providence. That God, I may not understand it, I may not see light at the end of the tunnel, but I know that, that you are with me. And I'm resting in the fact that I, I can't control all the narratives and all the circumstances and situations, but I can rest my head on the fact that you are not surprised about what I'm walking through. 
and I can trust you. Amen? I want us to, I want us to end singing. We're going to sing a song called Sovereign. It's written by Chris Tomlin. You, you, you all know Chris Tomlin, right? He wrote a song called Sovereign. I want to read some of the lyrics to you, and we're going to sing it together as we close. Would you stand to your feet with me? This words will be on the screen. I just want to read it to you. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm, sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign in my deepest cry, with me in the dark, with me at the dawn, in your everlasting arms, all the pieces of my life, from beginning to the end, I can trust you. In your never-failing love, you work everything for good. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. God, whatever comes our way, God, we will trust you. God, we will rest in your everlasting arms. I thank you for what your word does in our life. Challenge us, challenges us. Helps us to see more of who you are. Your greatness, your power, your majesty. And I pray that you help each one of us to trust you with every moment of our life. Beginning to end, we rest in your care. Bless your people today as they leave. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I love you. I'll see you next time.